If you were here last week, uh, we considered a controversial topic, uh, which is the second commandment and its relationship to images of Jesus Christ. And what we have learned, or what we learned from that lesson, is simply this, that since Jesus is God, that we should not allow any images of him to be portrayed. No movies, no pictures, uh, coloring books, anything like that. Uh, He is the second person of the Trinity. And since he is so, uh, we should not allow our minds to draw out one who is divine, even though he's took on flesh. And we can go on and on about various arguments of why we aren't to allow images of Christ uh, to be displayed. But as controversial as that topic is, I, I hope that it wasn't as controversial for you in your soul and in your mind and heart. Uh, I, I trust that God's word and by the Spirit uh, you were led to search more into what this uh, controversial subject is. And you came out of that echoing the same things that I and uh, the Bible and what our uh, Reformed tradition have said concerning images of Christ. And one of the reasons why I thought a lesson like that would be helpful is because since we are in December, we are in the holiday season, you are seeing already many images of Jesus Christ, uh, whether that be him uh, throughout his life or whether that be him in a manger as a baby. And keeping along that same vein, I, I want to consider uh, the humiliation of Christ. Uh, when we look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we tend to think that all it tells is merely God becoming man. And I'm not going to get into the debate of uh, why God became man, because that's a world of theology in and of itself. But more so, what is the incarnation actually displaying when we consider why God became man? Yes, it was for him to save his people from their sins and to serve, but What's actually, what is God saying to us in this incarnation, in the second person of the Trinity, taking on a body and reasonable soul? So this evening, I want us to look at the humiliation of Christ, which is a very important doctrine in Christology. And I want to do that by considering three points. Number one, what is meant by Christ's state of humiliation? What is meant by Christ's straight state of humiliation. What do we mean by that? Second, why is this called a state of humiliation? Why is this called a state of humiliation? And third, two examples of Christ's state of humiliation. Number one, we are to define, we're going to define what is uh, the humiliation of Christ. Uh, Number two, we're going to see why is it called a humiliation. And number three, we'll give two examples of uh, this humiliation of Christ and how we see it on display. Okay? Number one, what is meant by Christ's state of humiliation? What is meant? What do we mean when we say the humiliation of Christ? What are we speaking of? Well, let's first consider what the humiliation of Christ is not. What is not meant when we talk about the humiliation of Christ? Typically, when people speak of the humiliation of Christ, whether that be theologians, uh, average churchgoers, scholars, whoever, they tend to think that what constitutes Christ's humiliation is merely his assumption of a human nature. They tend to think that it is 
It is merely Christ or the second person of the Trinity taking on a body and reasonable soul. And that's all that he tells in his humiliation. It's in and of itself. That's the estate of Christ's humiliation. Uh, And the reason why the Reformed have rejected saying that the eternal son's assumption of a human nature is all that Christ's humiliation details is because Jesus never stops being the God-man. Let me me make it uh, more plain to you. At Christ's exaltation, does he remove his humanity? No. But when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he is still the God-man. Right now, he is still in flesh. So we can't say that Christ's humiliation is merely him taking on a human nature, because at his exaltation, he still has a human nature. So that's not merely all that uh, the humiliation of Christ is, him taking on uh, a body and reasonable soul. Although it is an important aspect of the humiliation of Christ, but it's not the humiliation of Christ in and of itself. That's not the essence of Christ's humiliation. Uh, Secondly, Christ's humiliation doesn't mean that he stopped being God. Uh, I had a conversation with a a friend uh, a little while back, and he thought that uh, Christ's humiliation, uh, Christ emptying himself, meant that he set aside his divinity, that he set aside his divine uh, prerogatives and his divine properties. And friends, if Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity, in order for him to take on flesh, if he was to set aside what it means for him to be God, then he would cease to be God. Because God cannot stop being God. Because if God stopped being God, then he's no longer God. <laughs> Whether that be he sets aside uh, him being all-knowing, uh, him being simple, any of those things. So uh, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, uh, taking on a true human nature, does not set aside uh, his divinity. Uh, He he takes on what he was not while never ceasing to be uh, what he was and who he is, truly God. Um, So what does the humiliation of Christ mean? What do we mean when we say the humiliation of Christ? And St. Paul gives us the answer in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It reads, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is, a, that is the classic text when we consider the humiliation of Christ, and it's a great definition. So according to Paul, Christ's humiliation consists of emptying himself. Emptying himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. The Westminster Larcher Catechism, question 46, builds upon what Paul is speaking of. It says, uh, question, what is the estate of Christ's humiliation? What is the estate of Christ's humiliation? The answer The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptied himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception, birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. 
Now notice the catechism says, Christ emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his glory. And friends, that is the essence of Christ's humiliation. What is Christ's humiliation? What do we mean by that? It's Christ emptying himself of glory. Now, we've already said that the eternal son never stopped being God when he assumed flesh. So what does this emptying of glory mean? Because it does sound like he let go of his glory or he left his glory in heaven. So what does Paul mean and what do the Westminster divines mean when they say emptying of glory? What is this emptying of glory? One theologian says correctly, the natural condition of Christ in so much as he is the impassable God, is that his glory would overflow into all parts and faculties of his soul and body, such that he would be impassable, that is, without possibility of suffering in his humanity. Christ, however, humbled himself and assumed a passable body and soul in order that he might be able to suffer on the behalf of his people. In other words, because Christ is the eternal Son, there is a glory that he brings with him in his eternal person. And on the account of the hypostatic union, this union of the divine person with a human nature, what is proper to the divine nature, that is, not being able to suffer, not changing, knowing all things, those properties should naturally overflow into his humanity because of the union of these two natures thereby causing his humanity not to suffer, not to change, and to know all things. But Christ humbled himself by not allowing the glory of his divinity to shine and be displayed through his humanity in order that he may suffer on the behalf of his people. We can say this, that Christ restrains the glory of his person, and does not allow the glory of his person to overflow into his human body and human soul in order that he may be a man who's like us and suffers on our behalf. Naturally, um, Christ's humanity should know all things. Naturally, he as man should take on properties of the divine because of the union of his person. He should know all things. He should be impassable. He should not change according to his humanity because he is God. But Christ conceals the glory of his person and doesn't allow that glory to overflow in his humanity. Now, what would happen if Christ does not conceal the glory of his person? What would we see? We will see something similar to what those three disciples saw at the Mount of Transfiguration. If Christ did not veil his glory, then he would be shining. He would be glowing. But also, he as man would take on properties of the divine. They would naturally flow into his body and soul. But Christ, in order for him to be a savior for us, he does not allow the glory of his person to overshadow and be a part of his humanity. And this is what our Reformed heritages have said concerning the humiliation of Christ. Petrus van Maastricht says, the state of humiliation is that in which, as regards the divine nature, the mediator deprived himself of the use and display of the glory otherwise belonging to him. 
He does not allow and does not display his essential glory in his humanity. And as regards the and as regards the human nature was subjected to extreme humility to the divine law for the accomplishment and purpose of all that was required to restore the sinner. Francis Turretin, the son of God, is said to have emptied himself uh, not by an abdication of deity, but by a concealment of it under the severe form. He became poor, not by a loss of heavenly riches, which he always retained, but by hiding them under the weak and needy flesh. He hid the glory of his person underneath his lowly condition and frail condition of his humanity. Hepe says, Christ's humiliation, the subject which is not the logos for himself, and still less the human nature adopted by him, but the logos became man, therefore consists not in his becoming man as such. In other words, what he means by that is, Christ's humiliation is not merely him becoming a man. That's not the essence of Christ's humiliation, but he goes on, and this is essentially the argument here. The Son of God could have adopted the human nature and in it let the divine, the full divine majesty shine. He could, have, he could have took him to himself a human nature and he could have let the glory of his person shine through his human body. But Christ rather humbled himself by assuming the servant form of a man, living in the state of sinful misery, and therefore on one hand divested himself of his divine glory by concealing the divine nature under his person beneath the assumed slave form of human nature. So in summary, what is the estate of Christ's humiliation? Christ's humiliation is Christ of his free volition, assumed body and soul, and prevented the outflow of his glory into all parts of faculties and soul and body. He prevented, he concealed his glory, and does not allow that glory to overflow into his humanity. In the incarnation, the eternal son empties himself by not allowing his glory to overflow in his humanity. And why? Why doesn't Christ allow the glory of his person to be seen? He does so so that he can suffer physical pain, death, be afflicted with inward sorrow, grief, and godly fear. If Christ was to allow the glory of his person to overflow into the faculties of his body and soul, then he would not be a mediator for us. He could not properly suffer on our behalf. Now, secondly, why is this called a state of humiliation? Why is this a state of humiliation? Concealing his glory, now how is that a state of humiliation? This is called a state of humiliation because Christ, by veiling the glory of his person, subjects himself to suffering and death. By Christ veiling the glory of his person, he subjects himself to suffering and death. And that is an interesting way to look at it. We as humans are subject to many things. But we are subject to those sinful conditions that Adam brought upon us. We are subject to change. We are subject to suffering. We are subject to sickness. We are even subject to death. None of us can escape those things, as our confession says that those are the common infirmities of man. 
these defects that we receive, we receive them or we contract them from our parents. And our parents get them from their parents. And their parents get them from their parents. And we can trace the lineage all the way back to when Adam fell. This is in part of what it means to be human, for us to be human. For us to be human, it means for us to suffer. It means for us to die. It means for us to have physical pain. But Christ, on the other hand, Christ does not contract these defects from his parents. Now, why? Because he's not biologically from Joseph. He is from Mary, but we have to remember that in the womb, the Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Jesus Christ. So Christ does not uh, get these defects that we have. But he humbled himself. And he subjects himself to these common infirmities that plague us as humans. Now notice that, friends. He doesn't have them. But he subjects himself to suffering. How many of you like to suffer? How many of you like physical pain or want to die? None of us. But Christ subjects himself to those things in order that he may be a faithful high priest. He assumes these defects of pain, suffering, change, in order that he may truly be like us in every respect, yet without sin. And when we say yet without sin, we don't, we don't mean that Christ never performed the act of sin. But what it means is he never contracted original sin. He wasn't from the lineage and line of Adam. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.7. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The things that we have, by merely being human, suffering, pain, Christ subjects himself to and freely and voluntarily does so. He says, I will take on those properties of what it means to be fallen in Adam. He willed to suffer. He willed pain. He willed to be mocked, not only in his divine nature, but in his human nature. All those beatings that Christ took, he willed those beatings. It says in Isaiah that his beard was plucked out. He willed for his beard to be plucked out. He determined those things by his divine decree for those things to happen upon him. How many of us pray and will pain? None of us. How many of us will death? None of us. But Christ willed these things because naturally they weren't his, but he subjects himself to these things. He assumed his humiliation freely. And we see Christ's humiliation manifest itself in each of the stages of his life. This emptying of glory shows itself out in all parts of his life up to the point of death. He lived a life of humility and pain and suffering, which leads to our third and final point, two examples of Christ's state of humiliation. Two examples of, the, of Christ's state of humiliation. And the two examples of Christ's state of humiliation that I want us to see is first at his conception and second at his birth. I can't give all the examples. We'll be here for too long, but let's consider 
the conception of Christ and the birth of Christ. Consider Christ's humiliation in his conception. What do we see the humiliation of Christ on display at his conception? Question 47 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says, How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Answer, Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, in that being from all eternity the Son of God, in the bosom of his Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman in low estate, and to be born of her, with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. It is at the conception of Christ where we first see Christ's humiliation put on display. And this humiliation is seen as Christ freely submitted himself to derive his human nature from Mary. That is where we see Christ's humiliation first on display, by freely submitting himself to derive his human nature from Mary. Now, Mary, friends, is not some vessel. She's not merely the holder of the body of Christ. But she is really the mother of Jesus Christ. Jesus is from the very substance of Mary. Or as the old boys would say, Mary is the material cause of the human nature of Christ. He is of Mary, just as you are of your parents. He is of Mary. Now what this means is this, in the womb of Mary, although Mary never had relations with Joseph, the Holy Spirit used the substance of Mary to form and frame the humanity of Christ. Jesus, then, is truly the son of Mary. There was something miraculous happening in the womb of Mary when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And what we see is the Holy Spirit is framing informing the human nature of Christ. And how does he do that? He takes the very substance of Mary to do so. That is why we say Mary is the mother of God. And this is what the witness of Scripture is, is it not? Luke 1, 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And this act of assuming the humanity of Mary into the unity of his eternal person is one of the key demonstrations of the humility of Christ in his conception. He allows Mary, this, this little Israelite woman who no one knows, he allows this woman to be the one who will bear the eternal son in her womb. What great humility is that? Consider Christ's humiliation in his birth. Uh, Simeon of Kasha says, Fourth century uh, church father. There is no room in the inn for the child miraculously born. The earth does not receive its God. He has no civil dwelling place in all the world. He is in heaven and earth cannot contain. Lies in a manger. We see how low the eternal son stooped at the nativity scene. We read of this in Luke 2 uh, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no place for the eternal son in an inn. So they went to a manger. Our Lord wasn't born in a castle or palace, but rather he slept 
quietly in a manger. He drank from his mother's breasts. And think about that. And this is very common when you would read any Puritans or Reformed Scholastics or even any of the church fathers. They love to talk about Christ, the eternal son, drinking from his mother's breasts. Now, why do they do so? They do so because they show that the one who is self-sufficient, dependent on his mother for nutrients. This is how low Christ went in order to save his people from his sins. The one who was the giver of life as a baby, dependent on his mother for sustained life. All a while, she was depending on him for her life. We like to think of when Christ is drinking milk from his mother. Even though he's depending on his mother for nutrients, he's still upholding the word or the world by the word of his power. He doesn't stop being God even as a baby. That's why we say no pictures of Christ as a baby. <laughs> he gave her life. And while as a baby, he was upholding her life. He was sustaining his mother's life while she was sustaining his life. And think about Mary and Joseph. Think about his parents. Our Christ didn't come uh, and didn't have a king and queen as parents, but he chose to have a carpenter as a father. He chose to have an Israelite woman who no one knew of as a mother. Loud trumpets weren't blowed from the east to the west, but his arrival came unexpectedly. And this lowly condition of our Lord continued from his conception to his birth all the way to his death on a cross. And in coming weeks, we will see how low he went when we consider him in, his, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane and what he went through up to the point of death, which we call his passion. This is what Hebrews 5 verse 8 says. This really encapsulates the life of our Lord. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We aren't to think that Christ willed one time to suffer, but he constantly was willing himself to suffer. He was constantly willing himself to undergo pain up to the point of willing himself to uh, die on the behalf of his people. So what we, have, what we have learned today, friends, and, and what are some practical uses that we can take away from this lesson? First, what have we learned today? We have learned that Christ's humiliation is not merely him taking on human flesh. It's not merely him being born uh, of flesh. But Christ's humiliation consists of not allowing the glory of his person to overflow into his human body and soul. And he does so in order that he may suffer physical pain, inward sorrow, and death on the behalf of his people. As a baby, he wasn't shining. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Throughout his life, he conceals the glory of his person. There was one time when he showed forth the glory of his person at the Mount of Transfiguration. But up to the point of death, he concealed who he was in his person in order that he may suffer rightly on the behalf of his people. And the beauty of the doctrine, of this doctrine, of the humiliation of Christ is this, friends. Christ empties his glory freely. 
He empties his glory freely. Christ suffers voluntarily and willingly. The same can't be said with us because suffering and pain, it goes with what it means for us to be born in Adam. That's part of what it means for us to be human. But Christ wills the very things that we do not want in this life in order that he may be a merciful and faithful high priest and save us from our sins. He does so to save and he does so to serve. And Christ's humiliation shows us the great lengths that we went to save and to serve his own. Now, how do we live in light of this? Well, first, as all, when we consider the life of Christ, this should cause us to obey Christ. Anytime we learn about Christ's humiliation, the incarnation, anything about Christ, this should cause us evermore to follow and to obey his law. But secondly, and lastly, Jesus is the supreme example that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If we want an example and see how those who are low will be brought high, they consider Jesus Christ. In Luke 22, when the disciples argued over who is the greatest, Jesus tells them, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as one who serves? Who is the greatest? That's a question the world asks, is it not? Who is the best at doing this? And Christ's humiliation teaches us is that the greatness of someone has nothing to do with status but it has everything to do with service. The greatness of one has nothing to do with the line that they were born into, but how well they serve in this life. Greatness lies not in who you are, but how have you served? And the one whose dignity far surpasses the richest man on earth came in such a low condition to serve. While men want to be extravagant and flamboyant and show off their jewelry and show off their clothes, Christ, who is altogether lovely and glorious, conceals the beauty of his person and does not allow that beauty and glory to overflow and be seen in his body and soul. So friends, my exhortation to you echoes St. Paul's in Philippians 2. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You desire to be exalted, friends? Have this mind amongst you. Have the mind of Christ. Find your exaltation. If you desire to be exalted in service, not in status, 
And one day, God will exalt you because he exalted his son. Let's pray.